This is Brian Bellick, and I'm joined by my partner, Jim Warren. Welcome to the Coach's Show podcast presented by Bud Light. It's a sure sign of a good time. Well, here we go. So they line up. Rivers has something final to say to his offset eye formation. He's under center, first and 10 from the 15. He gets, oh, he lost the ball! Rivers lost the ball on the exchange from center, but he may have fallen on it, diving on it, suffocating it. A big pile of players. They unravel him at the 15. The Chiefs have come out with the ball. The Chiefs have gotten it! Jim, uh, I'm sure you watched the Monday night game like I did, and boy, I just, at the end of the game, to watch the, the mishap between Phillip Rivers, Nick Hardwick as a coach, and I'm not pulling for sides here, San Diego or Kansas City, but you, your heart just had to break. It's like, oh, my God, how can this happen? <laughs> That's exactly what I said. I was in the airport. I'd gotten off the plane, and I actually sat down in the terminal to watch the end of the game, and I let out a giant, oh, no, when that happened. And everyone looked at me like I was crazy. But, you know, we see crazy things happen in the NFL all the time. But that isn't one of the things you expect to happen. It's almost automatic that two veteran players like Nick Hardwick and Phillip Rivers would just get the snap. And to have it happen at that time when they seemingly had the game won just was unbelievable. And you know what, Brian? It's what makes our game so fun, and it keeps us coming back now. It's no fun for the yeah, San Diego Not real Chargers fun for Norv Turner, but... Yeah. Norv Turner's not having a lot of fun, but, you know, it's, it's just a spectator sport, and you never, you just, hey, you never know when that center puts his hand on the, on the ball what's about to happen next. And just, just think about the sequence of events. Obviously, San Diego was up and down the field, had a tough time in the red zone, but that final drive, I mean, Phillip Rivers was magnificent. A third and 13... Uh, and his ability to convert on the run, just basically to will their way down the field. Now they're down there, and it's, uh, uh, excuse me, it was a third and 18 because he had taken them down the length of the field prior to that to get a score and had the two-point. So here they come back. Now he takes them down the field again on an eight play. He, gets, he overcomes a third and 18 of all the things that could have stopped that drive that could have given the wins to Kansas City. And for it to be a play like that, it's like, you're right. It's how do you I, – I don't know how you can explain it. Well, you, you can't explain it. And uh, that's the thing because it, you didn't see it coming. You know, you saw – they looked organized. You know, that was – like you said, Brian, that was a great drive. And he managed it so well. And they managed the clock well. And they ran the ball tough inside when they had to. And they got down to a position – where really it was just rudimentary. They were going to come out and they were going to kick a field goal and they were going to go home after a tough, you know, hard-fought win on the road with a clear-cut division lead. And now all of a sudden they find themselves tied for first. And if you look at Kansas City's schedule the next couple of weeks, you know, they're going to be 6-3 and three potentially here after nine weeks. So, I mean, what a shocker. And, you know, think about Norv Turner and how he has to go into the locker room after that game and, and what does he say to his players? Yeah, at that you know? point, what I, I don't know how you, you know, we've all done the, the smart conservative thing, you know, a third long, I'm not going to throw it. I'm just going to, I just want to get out of here and punt it, or I don't need any more field position, so I'll just hand it off, or I'll run a draw play. How safe can it can be? And the guy fumbles, you know, and, and you're going, Jesus, what, what, is, what is it I have to do? But for the quarterback center exchange, it's a little, I'll, I'll remind people, 
you know, I'm, I'm just now sleeping through the night. I hate to bring it up, but we're, I'm in the championship game. Gary Anderson has been perfect all year long. I mean, he was like 39 for 39 on field goals, and we get it down into field goal shape. And if we kick a field goal, we're going to go up by 10 against the Atlanta Falcons. We're going to go to the Super Bowl. I turn to Danny Green. I go, what do you want to do? Because it was like a third and six. He says, right. just set up the field goal. Gary Anderson doesn't miss. Because there's no way Atlanta's going to overcome 10 points. And I, I actually turn because I'm thinking, we're going to the Super Bowl. I'm turning to go back to get some Gatorade, and I hear the collective groan of the Metrodome crowd, and I'm thinking, you are kidding me. That could not have just happened. <laughs> yeah, and you, those are tough to get over. And You know, in the NFL, you're forced to, to get over things quickly, but there are things that linger. And losses like that, they have a tendency to linger. So I think the challenge for Norv this week is to, first of all, He's got to get himself back up. You know, he's got to find a way for, for himself to get over this. And then secondly, he's got to get his team over it quickly because they cannot afford to have any letdown after that devastating loss. They've got to get themselves back up. They've got to have good practice this week and get ready to go again Sunday. But I mean, those things have a tendency to linger. And, and you know, we've, we've all lost tough games. And, you go into the locker room with your team after the game, and it's it's customary that you say something to them. Sometimes there's just nothing to say. Sometimes yeah, you say, yeah. hey, guys, pack it up. Let's get out of here. Let's get on the plane. Credit your opponent. But we'll talk about it tomorrow. We'll talk about it when we get home. Right. And, you know, you have to gather yourself as a coach and, and figure out really what you're going to say to your team. Because, you know, Brian, as well as, as anybody, how important it is the message that you give your team following a tough loss or an emotional victory because you want them to enjoy that moment, but you realize as a coach that you've got to get refocused quickly on the next task at hand. Well, when you look at, and I think we saw it even in the overtime, I mean, here San Diego drives length of the field. They're going to win this game, all, you know, all but what the catastrophe that could have happened. And then that unfortunate sequence of events. And I think you saw it even in the overtime because San Diego came out and kind of slip-slopped around, didn't do anything. And then Kansas City gets the ball, and you know they're emotionally fired up because they just got the reprieve from the governor. I mean, they were staring a a loss in the face, and they reel off a 14-play, 74-yard drive then to, to, to uh, uh, kick the field goal to win the game. So I think just what you're saying, the effects of the emotion of that, we saw in the overtime. Now it's a Monday night. It's a short week. I happen to have the Green Bay-San Diego game this weekend, and you're exactly right. Norb's biggest challenge is not game planning for the Green Bay Packers, and that's a pretty good challenge in and of itself. It's how do I get this team. I'll tell you my biggest concern in something like that is the team going, oh, my God, we're snake bit. Oh boy, this just isn't gonna. Does this linger beyond the players believing? Because no, th- these guys are four and three now. They're still in the hunt. But they, do they start thinking, "Uh oh, this is just fate. It's kismet. We're we're not going to be able to win." You got to hope that they're mature enough, and I think they are mature enough. If you look at their coaching staff, it's obviously a veteran group. And with a guy like Philip Rivers, as devastated as he is, you know he's been through some some battles and. He is a mature guy, and he is a competitor. And it was interesting. I, I was really, you know, I, I didn't think that Kansas City, after that play, would be able to go down and score. So I, I thought the game was headed to overtime. And I really wanted to see how Phillip Rivers reacted, 
you know, on that night to what happened. And you're right, they did kind of slip-slop around. You know, they, you could tell that they were a little bit of a broken team. And I got to believe, knowing Philip the way you do, the way I do, and I really would love to be there with you Friday to sit and talk with him and hear what he has to say, but I think that they'll, that he'll find a way to recover. The problem is, Brian, and you and I know this because we've both been in those situations, is that if you come out against Green Bay, and you start just a little bit flat, you can never get it back against a team like Green Bay. There might be teams that you could come out, come out, and there's a little hangover in your first couple drives. You're, you know, you're still getting back into the game, and then all of a sudden, you know, you go, okay, let's start playing now. You know, we're over Kansas City against Green Bay. You can't have a lapse like that. You've got to go right from the right from the start. Yeah, and does and does Green Bay get energized? You know, to compound it, they're coming off a bye. So they're coming out fresh. Now they've got to go all but East Coast to West Coast. And I say East Coast, obviously, I know Green Bay is in the Midwest. But the fact that you've got to make that trek to the West, although San Diego's a pretty nice place to play, uh, and, and, and they're going to be fresh. They're going to be energized naturally like you typically are coming off a bye. And they're playing this team. I don't know. Maybe the short week will work in San Diego's behalf because – if uh, it's likely the coaches, it's one of those games, and I, we've both done this, where I'm not even going to show you the film, okay? We're right. on a short week. You get your day off. We'll regroup, get our game plan ready. We'll come in Wednesday, and we're just going to get ready for the Green Bay Packers because even though there are some teaching lessons to come out of that game, I don't know that the players really need to even look at that tape. I don't know that it's going to do them any good. I mean, I, you know, I don't know what they learned from it. They all just lived it. I know one thing, Philip Rivers does not need to see that fumbled snap again. Nick Hartwood does not need to see that fumbled snap again. They're not going to learn anything from that. Uh, and I, I kind of agree with you, Brian. I think it's a day that you just say, you know, hey, we're over that one. You've got to address it, certainly, with the team. But the faster you can get on to the next one, the faster you can get on to Green Bay, get their mind off of that one, I think the better for the, for the San Diego Chargers. Well, let's you and I get on to something else here. We we talked about on our coaches show uh, that uh, about the tendency now of coaches. We had a bit in showing about Rob Ryan and, you know, kind of I can't say he w- was regretting getting into a war words with the players on the Philadelphia Eagles. He basically said, you know, hopefully that won't happen again, meaning hopefully I won't get beat down again. Not that he wouldn't have the same exchange, but just the, hey, my fault, my bad, put it on me. It's all my fault. And we talked a little bit about, you know, the tendency of coaches now, and I don't like it. I'm worn out by it. I understand the humility thing, and but the, uh, hey, it's my fault. I didn't coach well enough. I didn't have these guys ready. You know, I think coaches have taken that that humble bit too far because, you know, the old saying is coaches uh, have for players, they'll walk if you let them, you know, and if you want to give them the out, players are going to go, yeah, okay, fine. That was your fault. Right. It, it, it does. It, initially, when you hear a coach say, you know what, that one's on me. And I think kind of the guy that kind of made it vogue was Rex Ryan last year. You know, he he was really good at taking things off of his player and putting it on himself, whether it be, a tough loss or saying something going to in the game to, to shift the focus from his players to himself. But I, I almost feel like at times it's this false humility. And I think really what it is, is it's almost a protective device. It's a preemptive strike because living as you do as a head coach, you're under the microscope all the time. And you know that when you lose a game, if you pick up the papers on Mondays, which I know you didn't do and I didn't do, and most coaches don't do, 
but unfortunately people remind us all the time what's in the paper, you know, they're going to take shots at you. And I think one of the ways coaches have tried to combat that is just to, to, to throw it out there themselves before somebody else can write it for them. But you're right. It, it kind of gets, it gets a little old, number one. And then number two, like you mentioned, Brian, is that it shifts accountability off of the players directly onto the coach. And that the more you do that, then the less accountability the players feel and the more the fans and hopefully not, but potentially your owner starts to say, you know what, this guy keeps telling him, telling everybody it's on him, man, it is on him. Maybe he's right. Yeah. Well, and and you're not buying anything. You're not buying any good graces of the fans, the media, or even your players or the ownership because it's done too much. What we're count because I thought you did a great job on the show, Jim. Because we talked a little bit about how you do have the obligation as a head coach. I, I always felt that way, and I know you've been in the same environment where. You know, assistant coaches, particularly coordinators, would like to become head coaches. They need to know how to deal with the media. And I never limited access to my coordinators, but I did tell them, look, understand now that there's a vulnerability here. you got to have a purpose for what you're doing. Why don't you lay out, you, had, you articulated it very well on the show on Monday, the three things you really wanted to communicate to your coaches if indeed they were going to talk to the media. Well, I agree with you. I think it's important for the assistant coaches have to have a chance to speak to the media for two reasons. Number one, the fans want to hear from them. And number two, it helps them as they progress in their career and hopefully get a chance to become a head coach. But I think it's important that the coordinator always understands that, number one, they do not speak on behalf of the team. The head coach speaks on behalf of the team. They strictly speak about their side of the ball. And what I've wanted them to do was heap praise on our opponent, be objective about where we were offensively or defensively, but keep the subject matter small. And the other thing is, is I didn't want them to ever say anything that would be inflammatory towards our opponent. And I just don't understand Rob Ryan getting in a war of the words with a player ever, ever. And I don't think it makes sense. I don't think it's a good thing for the league. I don't think it makes him look good. I think it, make, it makes him look small. And I don't think he's small. And I'm not talking about his stature. Obviously, I'm talking about you know, his character. This is a good person. He's a good man. He's a really good football coach. But it doesn't look good when that happens. But if the players want to sling barbs back and forth at each other, that's their deal. Although I don't encourage that either. But I just don't think a coach should ever lower themselves to that level. So, uh you know, like you said, hey, go out and, and talk and articulate your feelings and get used to being in front of the media. But, you know, farm your own land, basically. You know, stick with the thing that, that you're in charge of. Let the head coach talk for the team. You know, speak highly of your players, your opponent's players. Don't inflame any, any issues that might be out there. And, and then let it go. Well, and Jason Garrett, the head coach of the Cowboys, has, has a double whammy. Because on one side, he's got an offensive or a defensive coordinator in, in Rob Ryan that obviously gets, likes to get drawn into those type of things. And then he's got an owner in Jerry Jones and like no other owner in the league. I mean, after the game, he's the only owner I know of that has a press conference, much like the head coach would normally do. That is tough on a head coach. I, you know, it's not my place. First, Jerry Jones can do whatever he wants. This is his team. He, he writes the checks. But you got to believe part of the issue for the Cowboys over the years and with their head coaches is that because of this situation in Dallas and when you've got an owner that basically is going to be the final voice 
after a game. Obviously, like we said, ownership is the final voice. But on the game, when it comes to your team, when it comes to the game, when it comes to the season, if you don't empower your head coach that way, then then you don't you don't have the right head coach, or you've rendered him useless. And for Jason Garrett, it's a double whammy. Yeah, a couple things. First of all, he can control Rob Ryan. He he he's the head coach, so he's still the boss. So he just has to tell Rob, listen. Enough is enough, all right? It's kind of fun. It's kind of humorous. People get a kick out of it, but it's not good for our football team. It's not good for me, and it's not good for you. So I want you to stick to talking about our defense. Don't talk about the any, anything else but our defense, all right? Now, when you're talking about Jerry Jones, Jerry, like you said, owns the team. He has the right to say whatever he wants. But unless you've been a head coach, unless you, you've had to stand in front of the media every single day or stand in front of your team every single day, and project an image of authority, then you don't understand how difficult it can be if somebody is undermining that authority. And I don't think that Jerry Jones is doing it on purpose. I think that he just, you know, he wants to enunciate, he wants to to project his feelings and let people know how he's feeling. He likes, he likes the camera, but every time he goes out and he says something negative, about the play calling. And, he, and, and Jerry will say, he'll say, listen, I'm not second guessing anything, but, you know, yeah, it's maybe that but to get you every aggressive. time. Yeah, well, yeah, every time and that happens, and he, look, he, like you said, he has the right to do that. But when he does, he makes Jason Garrett's job immensely more difficult because now, not only are the media saying, well, man, or the owner thinks this guy's, you know, being conservative or being too aggressive or making poor calls or whatever it is. And they they see an open door to get on Jason, but the players also now have seen some shift in accountability taken from them and put directly on their coach. And I think that really undermines Jason's ability to do his job. But I think he's doing a tremendous job of managing it because you don't hear him saying a whole lot about it. You know, he's not going to complain about it. Uh, he understands. When he took that job, he understood that he was it was a different environment he was stepping into. He knew what he was getting into with Jerry Jones. He was getting an opportunity, number one, to work with an owner that's going to commit all of his resources and all his energy to helping you become a winner. He was in the building with you, and he was trying to help you win. But he also realized that with that came the fact that there were going to be some times when Jerry was going to speak to the media, and it was going to make it a little more difficult on the head coach. Yeah, it's a tough. I, I've always equated it to to the good news, bad news. It's it's like watching your mother in law drive off a cliff in your new Mercedes Benz. I mean, you're you're, <laughs> well, you're, I hope your mother in law's not listening. <laughs> <laughs> you're kind of conflicted. You know, it's part of this is good and part of this is bad. And you, well, let, enough about the team that lost. Let's talk. Let's talk about the team that won because the Eagles. That was an impressive win. And and the thing that jumped out at me was obviously the Eagles. We know they can be an explosive team, and they obviously defensively played better. That had been an issue for them. But the way their offense, the offense had the ball for 42 minutes. So the defense only had to play so well. And that's taking nothing away from the job that uh, Juan Castillo and the defense did do because they shut down what, you know, the the week before the, the Dallas Cowboys ran for 252 yards uh, and, and they only gave up 85 yards this week. Of course, it was only on 10 carries because they didn't have the ball. But the thing that impressed me most about the Eagles, we know they're explosive, but I had their game the week before the bye when they played Washington. They had a number of long 10 and 12 play drives. And when you look at the drives, they had, they opened up this game 
with with a, an 84-yard drive, a 90-yard drive, a couple, three 10-plus play drives, that that efficiency combined with their explosiveness, if they can maintain that, this Eagle team could be really, it could be the dream team that everybody talked about. Yeah, you know what? They're becoming the team that we thought they'd be when we looked at them on paper before the season started. And the key for them in maintaining those long drives is the fact that they're not turning the ball over, or at least they didn't turn the ball over Sunday. You know, they had 17 turnovers going into that game, and so they'd have these spectacular plays, these awe-inspiring plays, these highlight film plays, but surrounding those highlight film plays, they'd have, you know, stalled drives because of turnovers. And if they can eliminate those turnovers, now we can see, we've always seen the explosiveness that they have on offense, but now we see the fact that they can put a meticulous drive together, mixing play-action pass, runs, screens, draws, uh, you know, down the field shots from the pocket, Mike on the move, and they can be efficient doing those things. Now, all of a sudden, as a defensive coordinator, you don't just go in and say, okay, listen, if we stay over the top and take care of the big play, these guys are going to mistake, make mistakes to hurt themselves. Now you're going to say as a defensive coordinator, oh, my goodness, we really got to play football. You know, they're making us defend the whole field. They're keeping us out on the field on third or, you know, by converting those third downs where early in the season they weren't necessarily doing that, so they become a very complete football team. You mentioned their defense. You know, their defense is certainly a collection of very talented players, but up until the last couple of weeks, that's all it was. It was a collection of talented players who had not yet learned how to play together within the scheme that Juan Castillo had put in place. They didn't understand how they fit in the scheme, and they didn't understand how the guy next to them fit in the scheme. Now it looks like they've got a feel for each other. They're starting to figure it out. And when you can figure it out and you're talented like that, then you can play with a lot more certainty, which means you can play a lot faster, which means you're going to make a lot more plays. So I really like the frame of mind that the Eagles are in right now. I like the way they're headed. It's obviously an upward trajectory. And as much as much criticism as Andy Reid had to endure those first few weeks of the season, isn't it great to see him kind of, you know, he kept chopping wood. He kept, you know, he, he stayed with what he believed in, and it's starting to pay off for him. Well, that's why he's the dean of coaches right now. He's been at this a long time, and you know, we just talked about how does a North Turner deal with the emotions of his team, get him ready for the next task. Andy Reid's been doing that for a long time, and you knew if there was anybody that could hold this team together, it would be an Andy Reid. The other thing that that what, uh, interests me. Was and I know you're a big Michael Vick fan. I've had Philadelphia three times so far this season. And in talking with Michael, he wants very much to operate well out of the pocket. We know the dynamic things he can do outside the pocket, but he wants to be that guy that can also beat you in the pocket. And we talked about the long drives. One of the subtle things that happened in the game that tells me that they're beginning to get that way. And and Michael brought this up before the season. He very intelligently said, you know what, for me to be a complete quarterback, I've got to get the tight ends more involved because they're the guys that you go to in key situations. They're the guys that you go to to break down some of these zones to show that you're a good packet passer. Well, he had Brett Selleck for seven receptions for 94 yards. And, and I think that's a correlation between his finding that tight end and these long drives they're able to put together. Mike, you know, when he was in Atlanta, we had Algie Crumpler, who's a very good tight end in, in his day, a uh, very good tight end. And a tight end for a quarterback is a safety valve. He's a, you know, and I don't mean he's an outlet throw. I mean, he's, he's, a, he's a guy that they, when all 
breaks down, they can find the big man in the middle. And you saw that, as you mentioned, this week with Selleck. There was a real chemistry there that's developing between Mike and, and Selleck. And I think the other thing that it does, Brian, is that all of a sudden, if Selleck becomes a big part of this offense and a guy that you have to concentrate on and a guy that you've got to say, okay, you know what, uh, we've got to commit resources to stopping this guy, then it's going to continue to open things up for Macklin. And it's going to continue to open things up for Deshaun Jackson and Avant and those other receivers to the, to the, to the fact that now, you know, oh my goodness, who, who do you cover? Who do you stop? You know, where do you, where do you focus your resources on defense? Uh, the field all of a sudden just got a lot, lot bigger, and you've got a lot more territory to defend. Well, let's, let's talk about another an impressive team and an impressive game that also uh, won by chewing up large chunks of the clock. We're talking about the Pittsburgh Steelers, who played just a magnificent game against the New England Patriots. And when you look at Pittsburgh, I guess the thing, again, the overwhelming numbers, uh, is a time of possession. You know, beyond the productivity, obviously Ben Roethlisberger and the defense of the Pittsburgh Steelers did a good job. But you only have to play so much good defense when you're playing the kind of offense that chews up the clock the way the Pittsburgh Steelers did. I mean, when you look at what they were able to do, you can do a lot of things to stop Tom Brady, but to have the ball for 40 minutes and those opening two drives that Pittsburgh had, they had 11 plays for 68 yards and a touchdown, then 16 plays for 72 yards and a field goal. Tom Brady had one possession in the first quarter, and it was a three and out. You do that, you're going to have good. Uh, you're going to have luck against anybody. Yeah, you know, I was a defensive coordinator in the league for a long time, and uh, you know, I loved watching my guys out there playing on the field, and and the guys love to play. But the only thing the defensive players love more than playing on Sunday is sitting on the bench watching their offense just grind it out on a team and move the chains and keep the clock moving so they can sit over there resting. And, uh, yeah, they love to play football, and they want to get out there and they want to hit somebody. But given the option of that or sitting on the bench and watching your offense destroy somebody, everyone would take option number two. And Pittsburgh – you know, everyone thinks, I don't know that everyone thinks, but there's a perception of Pittsburgh that they play great defense and they just run the football at you and pound them. And that's really not true. I mean, for years now, they've been a spread it out, throw it off, and sure, they can run the football when they need to, but they sling it around pretty good with Ben Roethlisberger. And then, Brian, you know, you mentioned their defense and Dick LeBeau, and, you know, when you think of Pittsburgh's defense, you always think of, uh, fire zones, rush zones, you know, rushing linebackers and safeties and, and dropping defensive linemen into zones and, and being confusing with your pre-snap looks. And when you watch what Pittsburgh did on Sunday in New England, they went against what they typically do, and they played a bunch of bump-and-run man-to-man. And they were trying to get those hands on their, their, their hands on those receivers early in the down. And I think that it confused, at least early, uh, Tom Brady and there's receivers. I don't think they planned for that type of game coming in. And by the time they could adjust, it was too late simply because Pittsburgh had taken so much time on the clock offensively. So really just kind of a marvelous game plan, a really fine game plan by Pittsburgh on both sides of the ball. Once they see this game, now you better have a guy like Ben Roethlisberger to pull the trigger, but there were some vulnerabilities to the style of play that the New England Patriots saw. Do you think people will be able to take advantage of that going forward the way Pittsburgh did? 
Well, it's a copycat league, and every week, you know, you you can't wait on Monday to get the film of your opponent so you can see, especially if they struggled, you know, how a team played and if there's some things that you can incorporate into your game plan that week. Uh, so I think you're going to see teams try to go up and play more bump and run man to man on New England. Now they've got to have the athletes to do it on offense or on defense, and then you, in order to do that, you know, you're taking anytime you play man to man against Tom Brady, you're taking a chance because. If he finds the right guy and puts it where it's supposed to be, which he does on uh, you know a hefty amount of occasions, then you've got to be able to depend on your offense. And if you don't have a guy that can be as effective as Ben Roethlisberger, then you're really taking a chance. And and the other thing is, you know, as you and I know as coaches, almost as important as planning for your opponent and and modifying what you do, especially defensively. It's it's doing what you do best. And as soon as you step out of the footprint of what you do best, and you take a real risk at, you know, having a catastrophic type of performance because your guys are used to playing a certain way. They like to play a certain way. And if you ask them to play a different way and it doesn't pay off immediately in the game, then they start to question, why are we doing this? Let's talk about a guy that is doing the right thing, and we both have admiration for what he's done this year. Let's talk about Marvin Lewis and the Cincinnati Bengals. They're sitting here at 5-2, and two, and, and I'll lead the list of those. As much as I have an affection for Marvin Lewis, and he coached for me a number of years, there is no way anybody could anticipate that they would be sitting here at 5-2 and two with the transition that they've had to make with a rookie quarterback, a young receiving core. I know they're playing really good defense, but they're kind of doing it with a bunch of no-name guys. Well, they are, and I think one of the things, it's addition by subtraction. First of all, they got rid of some guys that were more about themselves than they were about the team, and I'm talking specifically about the two receivers. Um, they quickly moved on from a quarterback that said, I'm not going to be there. So rather than linger over whether or not Carson Palmer was bluffing with his, his threat to not come into camp and, you know, saying, hey, I'm going to retire, rather than letting that linger and hang over the team, Marvin Lewis simply said, Carson Palmer has decided to move on. We are going with Andy Dalton. Boy, the train's on the tracks. Let's get going. And now, you know, as a coach, typically the younger players are more impressionable. And I think both you and I have great respect for Marvin Lewis, what he represents, you know, him as a coach and as a man. And now he's got some young guys in his locker room that are going to buy in to what he's trying to tell them. And he's a phenomenal football coach. And now he's got some guys that aren't going to question him at every turn. And they're going to do what he, what he asks them to do. And I think it's paying off in spades. I mean, that's a fun team to watch. They're playing great defense. Mike Zimmer's doing a tremendous job on defense. They're running the football. Not, I mean, they're not killing people with the run, but they're, they're sticking with the run. Jay Gruden's putting together some really good game plans offensively. They're limiting the things that their quarterback has to do, why he learns as a rookie. I'm talking about Andy Dalton, obviously. But they're not limiting it to the point that it's stifling the ability of their offense to be productive. So I think that they're just doing things very, very uh, methodically, very, very smart. It's a fun team to watch. They had a great game on the road versus Seattle this week. And I'm not ready to count them out. Now, I'm not ready to say that they're a playoff team yet. But, boy, they are just as an organization headed in the right direction. Yeah, and we talked about that on Monday about being the playoff team. You know, I said, I've been saying for a while, if he gets to 500, if they go 8-8, eight eight, he ought to get coach of the year. Now, obviously, they've got Pittsburgh and Baltimore 
up twice the rest of the way. And that, that's a heavy toll. They also have the Houston Texans in there. That's going to be a bit of a tough one. But they also have some games in there. They've got Tennessee. They've got Cleveland. Um, they've got St. Louis. They've got Arizona. I, I, I'm with you. I was concerned that, you know, once they get into the heart of with Pittsburgh and Baltimore, they may be on the outside, you know, being that third position in the uh, NFC or the, uh, yeah, the NFC, uh, uh, excuse me, the AFC North. But I'm not, I agree. I'm not so sure with the way the schedule pans out. They might be in a, in a, in a position to go after that wild card spot. So it's, you know, it's going to be fun to watch at the very least. Well, they're tough. They're, they're a tough team. You know, I, I watched their game Sunday uh, against Seattle. And I was really impressed with, I'm not talking about physically tough, because every, every player in the National Football League is physically tough, but they're a mentally tough football team. They, they play with a purpose, and they play with the toughness, and they, you know, they are not distracted, and they're not easily knocked off track. And when things negative happen to them, they kind of plowed right through them. And to me, that's a sign, obviously, of good coaching, but it's also a sign of young guys maturing and believing in the system that their coaches taught them. So I'm excited to see where they go as a football team the rest of the year. Yeah, let, let's stay in the division. I had the uh, the Arizona Cardinals had visited the Baltimore Ravens. And, and like everybody, you know, uh, and, you, and you know, Jim, that when you get ready for a game like that, you're thinking, boy, what am I going to talk about in the second half? Because this thing looks like it could be really ugly. And, and here the Cardinals jump up 24-6. And the good news, it's good news, bad news. The Ravens had the biggest comeback in the history of their franchise, down 24 to 6 at half. That's the good news. The bad news is you were down 24 to 6 at the half to a 1 and 5 Arizona Cardinal team. And 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 that's neither here nor there. What what I want to talk about and we talked about on the coaches show on Monday. Um, it was very clear cut to me. Joe Flacco and we know the way Baltimore wants to win. They're going to play good defense, great defense. They're going to run the ball. They've had a tightly orchestrated plan for Joe Flacco since he came in as a rookie, and it's been very successful. But Joe Flacco, they did nothing until they got into their spread out, a little bit of no huddle late in the second quarter, went 50 yards on 13 plays, came right back, uh, and opened up in the second half the same way with seven plays, 80 yards, and a touchdown. Had another 10-play drive for 88 yards. He looked very comfortable in the spread-out gun offense, which he ran in college. Uh, we may be seeing a sea change in the way that the Baltimore Ravens want to do business going forward. Well, <laughs> yeah, it'll be interesting to see what they do this week, you know, because you're right. It, he just looked comfortable. He looked at ease. He looked like he was able to make really clear decisions. He didn't look stressed at all. And, uh, you know, that's not been their formula now. But, but that might be the formula that they need in order to win enough games to, to make a difference in the league this year. Uh, we know they're going to play good defense. They know that we know they've got Ray Rice back there. And, you know, you can't, you can't go completely away from the run because that guy's too good a player. But, Joe Flacco looked like a different guy. Okay, you know the the play action stuff is good, and and you know he's good, but it's kind of limiting. And he didn't look limited. He looked like you know someone had kind of had taken the reins off him and said, "Okay, just go ahead and do it, big boy." And and he did a nice job with it. I was really impressed with him on Sunday. Really interested to see what happens with that team offensively going forward. Do they do they shift? their their philosophy or do they go back to kind of what they've been 
Yeah, and, and it's a harder shift than you would think because, you know, you hear us say it, and it's, well, of course, how could they not want offensive productivity? But that is such a defensive-driven team, and there's no question that Ray Lewis and Ed Reed are the leaders of that team. Defensively, the mentality is we're good enough, don't make a mistake, and we'll win 17 to 10. We'll win 20 to 15 or 20 to 14. The problem is when we really need you and we play Aaron Rodgers and the Green Bay Packers, when we play Drew Brees and the New Orleans Saints, if we play a Tom Brady, if we play really one of the good quarterbacks, now we need you to step up and be a guy. Well, that's hard to do uh, just for that game if you've embraced the other mentality. The other thing that was interesting for me to watch was the relationship perceived relationship, because I don't know this for a fact, but just watching it, both in practice and, and, and watching it during the game, the relationship between Joe Flacco and Cam Cameron. I don't know that that's not a bit strained for any number of different reasons. You know, normally when you talk about a quarterback and his play caller, you think of Sean Payton and Drew B. Brees. You think of Mike McCarthy and Aaron Rodgers. There is a relationship there. It's almost like they can finish each other's sentences. Uh, Cam Cameron and Joe Flacco, I'm not going to say they're not on the same page, but there's not that affinity for one another. I'm not sure part of it is it because Flacco really believes, hey, you got to take the, the governor off me and let me play. Well, I, I agree with you. I mean, and, and when they did on Sunday, look at what he was able to accomplish. And so uh, you, you, you touched on it. You know, I've always said when I've been around Drew Brees and Sean Payton that Drew Brees is just an extension of Sean Payton out on the football field. They are completely in tune with what they want to accomplish on every single play that they run. When a play comes in, Drew Brees knows exactly what Sean Payton is thinking and calling that play and what he's trying to get out of it. You don't get that feel with Cam and Flacco right now. As a matter of fact, there was a couple of shots where they showed Flacco, and you did the game, but they showed him just running right off the field and starting to run right by Cam Cameron, and Cam had to reach out and grab him. Typically, a quarterback comes off the field after a, a, a big touchdown or a big drive like that, and then they kind of seek out the coordinator, you know, for a little feedback or a little high five or a little loving, and, and that wasn't happening, and that's a little bit of a concern. So you see that maybe there's a conflict in how the game is, is – how Flacco wants to play the game and how Cameron wants the game played. So, you know, that's going to be a, an, issue, an issue going forward. And, we, you know, we don't want to stir it up for them. They, they had, a, had a good win. Uh, but I think we need to keep our eye on it. Yeah, and, and we'll keep an eye on it this week because let's talk about some of the games coming up. And, and you're going to feel like I set you up this way because, you know, I, I talked to my mother, and you know this. My mother keeps asking me, how come he, Coach Murrow, always picks right when you pick these games and you always pick wrong? How come that? <laughs> she thinks, thinks she, she, you kick my butt with all these picks. But having said what we just said about the Baltimore Ravens, let's go back to week one. Baltimore Ravens ran for 170 yards. Joe Flacco threw it under 30 times but had three touchdowns. What can Baltimore go into Pittsburgh and beats Pittsburgh, and can they do it the way they did before? <laughs> you know, you talk about a tough one now. The way this thing's been set up, all right, and you and I just got done talking about do they need to shift the way they're playing offense? And even if they were leaning that way, when you go back and you look at the way they beat Pittsburgh week one, you'd almost be a fool to go away from what you'd done before. But they might have to. So that's what just adds more intrigue to this thing. Do I think they can go into Pittsburgh and win again? I think, yeah, I think they can. Do I think they will? No, I don't. I think Pittsburgh will win this game. Now, if, if the Ravens win this game, to me, it is an enormous, an enormous statement 
not just a, you know, hey, we, we, we kick their tail, but this is, hey, you know what? This is our division now. You go away. Okay, we got this thing. Uh, I don't think that'll happen, but if it does, boy, what a statement. Yeah, and for both these teams, once they get past this game, I don't see a lot on the horizon to be a, a speed bump for either one of these teams. So these head-to-heads are going to be huge. Yeah, I think Baltimore can go in and do it. I don't think they're going to be able to do it in the formula they had before. If they can run for better than 170 yards on the Pittsburgh Steelers, God love you. You deserve to win the championship. You deserve to win uh, or be the division leader. But I think they may very well have to do it more along the lines of what we saw uh, in the second half of the Arizona game. Uh, another big game uh, I've got, boy, the Packers versus the Chargers. We talked about the huge emotional drain of what happened on Monday night. The Packers are looking so good. Do the Chargers now, let's back up now. The Packers defense has shown some vulnerability. You think the Chargers have enough to go uh, at home and, 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 and keep up in what is apt to be a track meet? Well, if they can get the snap up, maybe they do. Yeah, uh, <laughs> that would be yeah, step one. You know, I think they've got the weapons offensively, and I think they've got the structure defensively to stop Green Bay. But I just don't know if anyone can stop Green Bay right now. I mean, they are a machine. They are on fire. You know, we keep waiting every week for them to maybe have a a down game, a down week. But they're playing like true champions. They're playing at a level just that's a notch above everybody else in terms of their production and certainly in terms of their consistency. There's so much consistency on that team. And they've got this great belief that they can win anywhere, anytime, in any way. No matter what happens in the game, they feel like they're going to come out a winner. And I think that that is crucial right now. So, you know, I I like to pick home teams. I I think it's tough to to travel all the way out, like you said, to the West Coast and play. But I just think that, that, uh, that Green Bay is a little bit too much for anybody right now. Yeah, you know, if if you're going to ask me, would I bet on Green Bay going sixteen and zero? Probably not. No, but would I bet on Green Bay in every single one of the remaining games? Yeah, I would. One game yeah. at a time. So, you know, I'm kind of talking out of both sides of my mouth, but we're part of the well, media you can now, do that so because you know we're what? allowed to do that. Yeah, yeah I'll okay. change my mind tomorrow. Um, but I, yeah, I, I think the key for San Diego, if they can start out well. Then, then yeah, things things could could kind of snowball for them. But if they struggle just a little bit, that crowd's apt to get on them a little bit. The Packers will feed off that. It could, it could get ugly. Let's talk about a game in the NFC South: Tampa Bay and New Orleans. Very interesting. I, I don't, but I don't know how to handicap New Orleans anymore. I really don't. Not after the loss to to St. Louis, after the big win against Indianapolis. This is in New Orleans, but Tampa has won in New Orleans the last couple of times. Well, Tampa gives New Orleans problems, and the reason is they can run the football. And they're going to have LeGarrette Blunt rolling this week. And, uh, you know, I did the first game, the game a couple weeks ago, where Tampa held on to win it at the end, and they just played with enormous confidence. Remember, that was coming off the game on out in uh, San Francisco where they just got lambasted. And so they, they've just got this short-term memory that's pretty impressive. Now, they've got a lot of inconsistency, which you find with young teams, and you never know exactly who's going to show up. But it seems to me with Tampa, when it's a big game, when it's a, a divisional game, a game that counts, and especially a game against the Saints that they know they need to win, that they're, they're, they're able to get that focus for that one game and go out and play well. I also think this. I think that you know New Orleans is a very veteran football team, and they're a very prideful team, and they've got a great coaching staff, and they suffered 
an embarrassing loss for them Sunday. And you hate to say any loss in the NFL is embarrassing because every team is good. But I think, you know, when you lose to a team that has not won a game yet, it's somewhat embarrassing, especially if you're the Saints. So I think there's some extra motivation for them this week to come back and play very well. I'm imagining that it'll be a very focused football team during the week. Sean Payton will certainly have their attention. They will work very hard. They will do extra work, and and they know they've got to go out and play well on Sunday. So I I'm I'm sticking with the Saints, Brian. I think the Saints are gonna are gonna win this one. Yeah, it's hard to pick against them, but I will say this. Last year for Josh Freeman, and he's clearly the key for Tampa Bay, both the emotional leader and the productivity leader, he had only six interceptions on the year and 25 touchdowns. He's already got 10 interceptions this year. If he can ratchet that back, not ratchet back the shots down the field and play the way that he's capable of, but if he doesn't turn the ball over, and it's true, this is kind of overly simplistic, any team that doesn't turn the ball over has got a chance to win. But New Orleans has turned the ball over. They haven't gotten a lot of turnovers so far far if Tampa Bay if Josh Freeman specifically cannot turn the ball over then I think they can go into New Orleans and and uh, and take them well that's going to do it for the Coaches Show podcast presented by Bud Light you can download the Coaches Show podcast from iTunes or go to nfl.com slash podcast also be sure to catch the Coaches Show on the NFL Network every Monday at 6 30 Eastern time so make sure you join us both here at the podcast and for the Coaches Show every Monday thanks for listening everybody